Let's open our Bibles together this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. First Corinthians chapter 15, and we are going to be starting in verse 19 this morning. Hear now the word of the Lord, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, and then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he will deliver the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule, every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word. Lord, we rejoice and we thank you for this good and pure and perfect gift that you have given to us that through your word, by your spirit, we hear the voice of our God. We come to know our God, that we're transformed into the likeness of Christ. And so I pray, God, that you would accomplish all of your good purposes on this Resurrection Sunday through your word. I pray for myself as I proclaim your word that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this past couple of years has caused many, and perhaps many of us, to be filled with worries about the future and what the future might look like. Is the world ever going to go back to normal after this COVID nightmare we have been through the last couple years. Are we on the brink of World War III right now? Will our economy completely fall apart? Will we even be able to survive and pay our bills? Has the moral compass of our society just gone too far and it's never going to be able to come back again? Will Christians in America face persecution like our brothers and sisters around the rest of the world? Or Maybe you don't have all of those anxieties, but you're just completely exhausted. How am I going to see these kids through to adulthood? They've got so much energy, and I'm all out. How am I going to get the energy to get up and go to work every day for the rest of my life? When am I going to finally feel happy? When am I finally going to feel fulfilled? Will, will one more disappointment, will one more grief break me? What, what does the future hold? Will it ever get better? These questions have been swirling, and in, in the last couple years, it seems more than ever in people's minds. And that brings us to the incredibly good news of Easter. Since Christ has risen from the dead, Christian, here's what this means for us. The best is yet to come. Our best days are... I, I'm about to turn 46, and I already think, like, man, 
I'll never feel good again for the whole rest of my life. My best days are long past. Oh, that's not true. The best is yet to come. In other words, you can know for sure, for a fact, that if you are in Christ, your future is bright. It's not just bright, it's glorious. It's good for us to remind ourselves of these things. And this morning's text reveals this incredibly good news of Easter. It reveals to us this amazing, hope-giving truth. Three aspects we see here of our future in light of the resurrection. First, since Christ rose, you will rise, Christian. Second, since Christ rose, death will cease, this great enemy. Third, since Christ rose, God will reign. Let's just look through this passage again. First, since Christ rose, you will rise. In other words, your resurrection is guaranteed. Look at verse 19. If in Christ we have hope for this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. In other words, what, what Paul's getting at here, if, if the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not a historical fact, if this is not a real thing that happened, the Lord Jesus Christ died, was buried, and rose from the grave and lives evermore. If that's not true, our faith is worthless. And we've wasted our lives. In fact, there, there are some apologetic arguments that basically say, even if there is no God, but you lived like a Christian, you probably lived a happier life anyway because you didn't get yourself into all kinds of trouble. That's not what the Bible tells us. You should pity us more than anybody in the whole world if this hope was false. Paul says this, but in fact, Christ has raised, raised from the dead. He has risen. He was the first fruits of those who have died. Verse 21, he says, For as by man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. He makes these two sort of parallel statements. By a man came death, and in Adam all die. And Paul told us about this. If, if this is your, your regular church and you've been with us as we go through the book of Romans, we saw this in, in such clear terms um, from Paul in Romans chapter 5, that this death affects everyone. That, that the death that came from Adam's sin affects everyone because everyone inherited corruption and guilt and condemnation from our father Adam. That's what Paul's now saying here in 1 Corinthians 15. But thankfully, that's not the last word on the matter. If that was all the news we had, if we just had the first three chapters of the book of Romans, if we just had this statement that, that because of Adam's sin, you're all born into corruption and condemnation and death, that would be the worst news in the whole world. But that's not the end of the story. The, the last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, came to earth and succeeded where the first Adam failed. And through his perfect life, death, and resurrection, Jesus Christ has defeated death. And so that's glorious news. He's defeated death. But how do we know that we're going to rise? Because that's the issue we're concerned with. Well, let's keep reading verse 23. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and then in his coming, those who belong to Christ. This is the second time now in this passage that Paul has used this word, first fruits and said Jesus is the first fruits. He did it in verse 20. Now he does it again in verse 23. What are the first fruits? Well, they're, they're the first installment of the harvest. 
They're a foretaste. They tell you what the harvest is going to be like. It's just that, that first taste. The ESV study Bible says it's the first sample of a crop that indicates the nature and quality of the rest of the crop. Therefore, Christ's resurrection body gives us a foretaste of what those of believers will be like. Christ is the first fruits. He shows us what it's going to be like. It's the first taste. More than that, it doesn't just show us what, what can be. It guarantees. The resurrection of Christ guarantees our resurrection. R.C. Sproul says this. At harvest time, the Israelites were required to bring an offering from the first part of the crop. This offering was a token of the whole harvest that belonged in its entirety to God. Jesus is the first fruits because his resurrection and the resurrection of believers are closely related events. Jesus was the first to rise from the dead, incorruptible, rising as our representative. His resurrection caused us to be raised with him by the Holy Spirit, and at the same time guarantees that we will be raised bodily. It's the resurrection of Christ, Paul says here, is the guarantee that we too, if we are in Christ, will be raised. You may be familiar with the clothing company L.L. Bean. They've been around for over 100 years. And for years and years and years, this company was known for two things. One was the high quality of their clothing. And the second was their incredibly generous return policy because for for most of that hundred years their return policy was you can return anything you've bought from us at any time no matter how long it's been and no matter what condition it is in and you'll receive a full refund no questions asked now most of us looking at the world today think now that's not going to work out very well this was the policy for almost a hundred years one man had bought a shirt from ll bean kept it for 20 years and worn it for 20 years and returned it for a full refund because he told them it's now missing a button. He got his refund. Another man returned a pair of boots that were 15 years old and he received a full refund. But then starting around the 1990s with the internet becoming a thing, kids, the internet didn't always exist. People, people began buying L.L. Bean merchandise. They'd buy it at thrift stores and yard sales. They'd buy it on eBay. They'd buy it wherever they could get it. And then they'd take it to L.L. Bean and get a full refund. They'd make a profit off of their clothes. And it became completely unsustainable. So in 2018, the company changed their 100-year guarantee. And it is not a guarantee anymore. I think it's still like a, year, a full year, no questions asked, which is kind of incredible still. But... This guarantee that they had, that they kind of built their business model on, is not a guarantee anymore. The truth is, nothing in life is guaranteed. There's no guarantee that we're going on vacation soon and we're thinking about, like, we hope that the rental car we've paid for is actually going to be there when we get there. Because over the last couple of years, lots of people have run into these kind of things. The guarantee doesn't mean anything. Good health is not guaranteed to us. We're not actually guaranteed that our best days of physical feeling in this life aren't already behind us. For many of us, let's be honest, they are. It's no guarantee. A happy marriage is not guaranteed to us. Good kids are not guaranteed to us. Not even death and taxes are really guaranteed to us. But there is one thing that is guaranteed. 
If you are in Christ, you will rise from the dead. That is a rock-solid, sure guarantee that will never be revoked. It will never be taken away. This is guaranteed by the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christian, you will rise to life. When the Lord Jesus Christ returns, you will be resurrected. This means, then, that the end of suffering is guaranteed. Praise God for that. This life is largely defined by suffering. But it has an end date. The end of loneliness. The end of aging. The end of aches and pains. The end of anxiety. The end of depression. The end of disease. The end of conflict and trials and financial difficulties. Since Christ rose, you will rise. It is guaranteed. There's no need to despair. There's no need for the Christian to despair. If you are in Christ, your future is sure, and the best is yet to come. Oh, praise God for that news. I mean, apart from that news, who could have any hope in this world? Secondly, since Christ rose, death will cease. Death is a constant in all of our lives, as adults anyway. Kids sometimes... Uh, providentially are blissfully unaware for most of their young lives of, of death. But the last two years have had us thinking about death more than ever. We've had this, this uh, virus that has swept through. Death has been nonstop in our face and in the news. We've all known people uh, that we have lost in this last couple of years, far too many. We see the wars going on around us and the death that's happening. We see the violence that goes on around us. Every year, 57 million people die worldwide. Every, every day, 152,000 people die. Every hour, 6,316 people die. Every minute, 150 people die. Since this sermon started, approximately 1,050 people have died. This life is marked by death, defined by death. Death is the great enemy that no amount of money or fame or physical strength or exercise or healthy eating or avoiding carbohydrates and sugars, none of those things can defeat it. For every man, woman, boy, and girl, the odds of dying are sitting right at 100%. It's a sure thing. And death is also a very unpleasant topic. Although it, although it surrounds us, it's not something we like to talk about. And so people try to avoid talking about it. People try to avoid thinking about it. We even use euphemism. We'll very rarely say that someone has died. We'll say they passed away or any number of euphemisms we'll use for that. It frightens us. Thinking of it hurts us. But Christians, for us, death is not the end. It is not the end. It is the beginning of eternal life in the presence of the triune God. In fact, when we die, we will be more alive than we've ever been. How do we know that? Well, we know it, Paul says, because Christ rose from the dead. That's how we know it's true. We don't always feel it. Oh, death feels so final. When we fear our own death, when we lose a loved one, 
And yet Paul says, because Christ rose from the dead, we know for sure that death is not the end. Since Christ rose, death will cease. Look at verse 23 again. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Everything Paul says in these verses right here, verses 23 through 26, it's built on the foundation he built in verses 20 through 22, on the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The the resurrection of Jesus Christ started a chain of events that cannot be stopped. It cannot be broken. If we imagine this, this cosmic chain of dominoes that's lined up, Throughout all of eternity, Christ's resurrection is that first domino being knocked up. And there's nothing that can stop this chain reaction from happening now. The last domino to fall is death, Paul says. Nothing can stop that domino from falling. Nothing can stop death from being destroyed. Paul here describes the sequence of events ignited by the resurrection. Verse 23, each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, and then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Christ rose first as the first fruits, and when he returns to earth, the saints will rise from their graves. Verse 24, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God the Father after the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. When Christ returns, he will raise the saints and then the end will come. And in the end, he will return the kingdom to the kingdom of God to God the Father, Paul says. So here's the sequence. Christ rose from the grave as the first fruits, verses 22 and 23 tells us. Then Christ will return, verse 23 says. Then the saints will be raised. Then comes the end of the age, verse 24 says. And at the end of the age, King Jesus will present the kingdom to his father. And that means every single enemy of the king, every single one, including death, will have at that time been completely and totally destroyed, verses 25 and 26 say. Since Christ rose from the dead, one day death will cease. This is guaranteed. This is promised to us, and this is incredibly good news. This is the best news. Over 115 people, billion people have lived and died on this planet. There's no cure for death. Everyone that lives dies. Again, most of us know the pain of this. We know the hurt of this loss. I doubt there's a person in this room who hasn't been affected by the death of someone they love just in the last year. We know the hurt. We know the pain. All of humanity has known this. For all of the existence of humanity, we have known the pain and the loss and the suffering. But Jesus destroyed death at his resurrection. And if if Jesus did that, if he destroyed death at his resurrection, then why do people still die? Why has anyone died since then, particularly any Christian? 
Well, because like the kingdom of God that Paul describes here, Christ's victory over death is a present reality for us, but it's not yet been fully realized for us. We will come into a a fuller realization, a fuller experience of this yet to come. Verse 22, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, for each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So Christ's resurrection sets in motion a process that's guaranteed to come to pass, but it will not fully come to pass until Christ returns. Then we'll come into the fullness of his victory over death. In the meantime, though, death has no ultimate power over us. Yes, we all die. Christians, non-Christians alike, but for those who are in Christ, death has no power over us. Death ushers the Christian into the very presence of God. Where we, where we await our resurrection bodies at the return of Christ. There's this great modern hymn by a, a, a hymn writer named Bob Coughlin. It's called, It Is Not Death to Die. Here are the words of that hymn. It's not death to die to leave this weary road. Join the saints who dwell on high who have found their home with God. It's not death to close the eyes long dimmed by tears and wake in joy before your throne delivered from our fears. It's not death to fling aside this earthly dust and rise with strong and noble wing to live among the just. It's not death to hear the key unlock the door that sets us free from mortal years to praise you evermore. And then the chorus of this hymn says, O Jesus, conquering the grave, your precious blood has power to save. Those who trust in you will in your mercy find that it is not death to die. When we receive our resurrection bodies, we will reign with God forever. That's the Christian hope. It brings us to our last point. Since Christ rose, God will reign. We will reign with him. Currently, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, reigns over all things. Again, Paul says in verse 25, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. That's what he's doing right now. The ascended Christ seated at the right hand of power, reigning, ruling, putting his enemies under his feet one by one. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet, but when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. What's Paul saying? Jesus Christ, the Son of God, rules and reigns over all things right now. Remember that Jesus Christ in coming in the flesh is truly God and truly man. And according to Genesis chapters 1 and 2 and Psalm 8, which is what Paul quotes here in verse 27, mankind was created by God to rule over all of creation and that went bad right from the start. The first man, the first woman, they sinned in the garden. And our relationship to creation has been deeply flawed ever since then. The creation that we're supposed to rule over is like trying to kill us at every turn. Right? I I might be eaten by a shark in Florida this summer. Could happen. Uh, If you're in the wrong, we don't have as many in our area, but if you're in the wrong areas, all the animals are trying to kill you. 
The sun, which gives us light, light and life, will also kill you if you stay out in it too long. Our, 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 our ruling over creation has not gone very well. One of the reasons the Lord Jesus Christ came to earth was to rule over creation. As the perfect man, as the one true representative of the whole human race, the man, Jesus Christ, has earned the right to rule over all things by conquering sin and death through his death and resurrection. And so, in that sense, the resurrection of Jesus Christ was the public coronation of King Jesus. His, his right to rule and reign established and proclaimed at the resurrection God the Father gave his son the throne of all the universe. We read this in, in Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Psalm 110, it's the most, it's the most quoted Old Testament passage in all of the New Testament. And for good reason. Psalm 110 is... A divine conversation between God the Father and God the Son that God in His grace has seen fit to record for us. It is a conversation that actually took place. In the book of Acts chapter 2, the Apostle Peter actually tells us when this conversation happened. That Psalm 110 is a conversation that happened between God the Father and God the Son. And Peter tells us it was after the resurrection of Christ when Christ ascended back to the Father this is what the Father said to him. How, glorious, how cool is that, that God chose to reveal that to us? It's an amazing thing to me. The Son ascends to glory, and God records for us what the Father said to the Son in that moment. And here's the point. Because of his resurrection, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, reigns over all. He has all authority. The Lord Jesus Christ currently reigns over all things. And he will reign. He reigns from his first coming. And he reigns until his second coming. And then Paul makes this statement that he's going he's to hand all things back over to his father. Verse 24 says, then comes the end. Well, he will deliver the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule, every authority and power. Then in verse 27, he says, For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Paul sometimes says things in a way that make us like you have to reread it eight times. This is one of those things. In other words, though, Paul's saying this. Currently, Christ rules over everything with one exception. He does not rule over his Father. Pa Paul writes in verse 27, It's plain that he, that's the Father, is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. That's Jesus Christ. No one rules over the Father when the resurrected Christ returns and all things come to an end, the Son will then give the kingdom back to his Father as an offering, as a gift. 
Now, does this mean that the father is superior to the son? People will read statements like this, and they they start to, to create divisions among the triune Godhead. Okay, so God the Father, he's the big guy. He's the the most powerful, the most important one. Are are there two gods? There's God the Father who's greater, the Lord Jesus Christ who's who's lesser. Absolutely not. That is absolutely not what Paul's saying. This has nothing to do with ontology, which just means being, who who they are, who, who, who God is. It has nothing to do with godness. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are all equal. Equal in value, equal in essence, equal in deity, but different in function. John MacArthur says this. You know what's beautiful about that? Christ in his incarnation form, even in that day, acts out the role of humility by submitting himself to the Father. Always the servant. From the time he was given a body and he came into the world till the time he presents it back to God, he is the servant fulfilling his task. And then he gives it back to God. It's this beautiful picture that that, that the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the triune Godhead, who who has always existed in fullness of glory and power, humbled himself, the greatest humbling that has ever taken place. By becoming a man. He didn't lose his godness. He added something to it. And in doing so, took on the role of the servant as our representative. So does that mean Christ isn't reigning anymore now? Since he's taken on flesh and ever will be truly God and truly man as he reigns in glory in heaven. Does that mean that that, that he isn't the one reigning over all things? Well, absolutely not. We just read that he was. In Luke chapter 1, verse 31, the angel tells Mary this, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. The Lord Jesus Christ reigns now and will reign forever. Revelation chapter 11, verse 15 says, He shall reign forever and ever. You can't get any more clear than that. The perfect reign of the triune God will never cease, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ proves it. It's our guarantee, it's our surety that that will always be the case. Because of the resurrection, Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. He is currently orchestrating every detail in the entire universe And Christian, every detail of your entire life, there is peace to be found there. There is hope to be found there. He reigns over your job. He reigns over your health. He reigns over your family. He reigns over your career. He reigns over your home and car maintenance. He reigns over every blade of grass in your lawn. He reigns over every virus. He reigns over every war. He reigns over every political regime. None of this has caught him by surprise. None of it has caught him off guard. But the news is better than that. None of this is thwarting his eternal purposes. He's reigning over all of it. 
His purposes are being carried out exactly as he designed before the foundation of the world. And so the things that terrify us and rattle us and fill us with anxiety and make it so we can't sleep at night, he's not worried about them. Not because he's strong enough to react to them, but because everything is going according to plan and he is working out his good purposes and his purposes are good and glorious and he sees the end from the beginning and we don't, so we freak out. Praise God for this glorious revelation of truth of God who reigns over all things. As King of kings and Lord of lords, he is moving all things to their their appointed end in history. He has a plan for your life. That's true for all of us. It's true for believers, but it's true for unbelievers. It's true for those who bow the knee in obedience and submission to the Lordship of Christ and in humble worship, and it's true for those who rebel. He has a plan for your life, and nothing can stop that plan from unfolding exactly as he intends it to unfold. That could fill you with joy, or it could fill you with dread. But it's true nonetheless. The resurrection and reigning Christ rules over all things. And he is worthy of your trust this Easter Sunday morning. You can willingly bow to King Jesus right now. In the midst of this present evil age, bow before his lordship. Or you can be forced to bow when he returns. And friend, that that will not be a good experience for you. To bow the knee now, to to call upon the Lord of glory and grace for his mercy that he has provided in abundance in the cross, that for his salvation that is filled with power to save in his resurrection, to do so now is joyous. Glorious and causes one to become a son of God who inherits all of the riches of glory. But to refuse to do so and be made to bow the knee, be made to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, even in the midst of your rebellion and your refusal, once it's too late, oh, that will not. That will not be a good experience. Either way, though, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. For for those who trust in him, though, the resurrection changes everything. But believer, since Jesus rose, you will rise. Since Jesus rose, death will cease. Since Jesus rose, God will reign, and Scripture tells us we will reign with him. This is great and glorious news for us. The best is yet to come because of the resurrection of Christ. We have cause to celebrate. We have cause to worship. I said this morning in our sunrise worship that that the whole world today is celebrating. They're celebrating Easter with with chocolates and bunnies and 
all manner of springtime festivities. But we're the only ones who have a cause to celebrate this. You know, what, what cause we have. What glorious truth the Lord has revealed to us. What a glorious gospel this is. That, that sinful men and women, rebels, can be reconciled to the Savior. We rejoice in the resurrection. We rejoice in the hope of the resurrection. That the best is yet to come. And we need not fear. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this glorious revelation of the risen Christ, of his completed and perfect work in his incarnation, living as a man, being tempted in all ways just as we are, yet without sinning, as our representative, perfectly keeping the law of God in our place. As our representative going to the cross for our sin, for our condemnation, taking the cup of God's wrath and, and drinking it to the full for us such that there is none left for all who are in him. There's glorious resurrection from the grave in power, conquering once and for all death and sin and even hell, assuring us of our salvation assuring us of our resurrection, assuring us of our eternal life in glory. We glory in the ascension of the, Christ, of the Lord Jesus Christ to the right hand of glory, the sending of the Holy Spirit who, who dwells in us, who delivers these promises to us, who is our, our surety of, of the promises that will be fulfilled who is our foretaste of the glory that awaits us, who is the one that, that transforms us even from death to life, who takes us from, from a rebellious state and causes us to joyfully bow the knee in worship. And we rejoice in your unshakable promises to us that we need not fear because we have hope in you if we are in Christ. Pray, Lord, that, that increasingly you would be glorified in us as we live lives that bear good fruit for your name. That we would show forth in this world the power of your kingdom, the glory of your kingdom, the love of our God to a world that is in desperate need of true love and true light. Pray, God, that as a church you would cause us to be increasingly faithful to that end. Cause us to love you more to worship you more, to love one another more. Cause us to live our lives in the light of our union with Christ and our union with one another, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.